Welcome, welcome, welcome to a wonderful episode of the Gospel According to Stupid. I'm Johnny Waters, and this is my podcast where I read the Bible from cover to cover because uh, Miles Morales is dealing with New York. I've been playing a lot of video games, as you can tell, uh, <laughs> instead of trying to make the world better. Um, oh, uh, well, okay, so business first, and then before we get into our lengthy um, summaries, which doesn't seem terribly lengthy, uh, of Job. Uh, so you can reach out to us at accordingtostupid at gmail.com and, of course, on the Twitter sphere at accordtostupid and the website, <coughs> excuse me, www.johnwatersvoiceover.com forward slash podcasts where you can see the gospel according to stupid uh, and, you know, see my dumb face and even hire me if you're looking for some, you know, little projects and things. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck, something just jumped up and bit me. Um, okay, hey. So, you remember that, uh, that nice person, the, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness who was, uh, writing letters and stuff like that? Well, they've sent me a letter the other day, uh, to join them via, uh, Zoom to, uh, enjoy Passover, which was very nice of them, and I have every intention of writing a letter back. Or at least an email, being like, hey, I missed our discussions. Uh, I hope you've been listening diligently. You know, that sort of thing. Which, who knows, they might be, they might not be. But that was very nice of them, and that's about all that they put in there. You know, same same sort of Bible verses, same things of that, and blah, blah, blah. But, that's where we're at. So, that was interesting, finally. Ugh. Um, today... We are going through the book of Job as, like, just summaries that other people have uh, have done for me, because the other ones I just kind of went back through and kind of rehashed it as it was. And as fun as that is, I don't think we're getting quite as much out of it as we should be. Um, so I, I have three sites that uh, did some summaries. Uh, one of them is Schmoop, uh, which has been kind of humorous. Uh, the other one is Bible Hub, which seems good to me, I guess. <clears throat> and um, the last and probably best one is uh, Sparknotes. So, you know, we'll get all sorts of different shit in this. So let's let's get started. We're going to start with Schmoop and uh, see where we go from here. So the book of Job summary. Job is the bee's knees, really. He's blameless and upright, and he has kids, a wife, land, and a bunch of sheep. Doesn't get much better than that. Up in the heavens, God brags to the divine assembly about Job. Does he? I don't remember much bragging. Lo and behold, Satan comes out and challenges God on Job's goodness. This can't end well, and it doesn't. This is not the Satan of Paradise Lost, or even the Satan of the New Testament. Oh. So which Satan is he? Uh, for the full scoop, head on over to the figures section. Oh, well. You have... Uh, leapt into my thing here. Okay, so Satan. Let's just lead in and see what goes on here, man. This is not your grandfather's Satan. No red horns, no no skin, whatever, pointy teeth and tail, devilish grin. This Satan isn't even a tempter yet. In, so he, <laughs> but yet he tempted with the snake and stuff. In Hebrew, Satan actually means the accuser or the prosecutor, and he is referred to as the Satan, not just Satan. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. It's more of a title than anything else, like Your Honor or The Monsieur. Uh-huh. I, I think that's a bunch of bullshit, but let's keep reading. Satan only pops up in chapters 1 and 2, 
when things get poetic, he's out of there for good. Is he? When things get poetic, he's out of there for good. Okay. We don't have much to go on, but let's take a look. What we know about Satan. He spends a good amount of time down on earth when he presents himself to God in his divine court, and God asks him how his life is going. Satan always replies that he's been hanging out on earth. Angels get to do that, apparently, or at least that one. But it doesn't make sense to me that they would use the same guy with the same name twice. Fucking dumb. Isn't he a push, too? He isn't a pushover. Satan challenges God not once, but twice. Why does this matter? Well, it kind of makes us wonder if we, too, should be questioning God. Hey, okay. Uh, Schmoop, you've uh, won yourself a point here. Three. He's pretty powerful. Remember, God doesn't inflict anything nasty on Job with his own divine power. We don't really know. Instead, he allows Satan to use his own power. I guess that's true. Never mind. All right. But he allowed it, so <laughs> still not great. Having Satan do all the dirty work is a very Greek mythology thing to do. You know, let a demigod do the dirty work, then assert your dominance anyway. But it also makes us think of Satan as the bad guy. He certainly isn't raining down sunshine, rainbows, and love. True. Disappearing Act Satan doesn't stick around very long. Why? Because ultimately this fight is between Job and God. Satan's a catalyst, sure, but the moral of the story lies in man's relationship to God. All right. Fair enough. So that's that. Okay. Hmm. Well, that, uh, that was slightly informative. Anyway, uh, back to the story. Literally, it says this. Uh, Satan tells God, sure, Job loves God now, but take away his earthly possessions and his children and he will dump God in a New York minute. God agrees to the challenge and Satan unleashes a force that kills all of Job's family except his wife, kills his servants, and reduces his homes to dust. Ouch. But guess what? Job remains loyal. He refuses to denounce God. Take that, Satan. He, it's true. He doesn't denounce him. He's not happy with him, but he denounces. He doesn't denounce him. God gets to, gets to back to bragging, and Satan sets up another challenge. This time, God lets Satan give Job a nasty rash, boils and blisters all over his body. Now Job becomes a much less happy camper. After all, he was loyal to God, and look what happened. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't renounce God, but he does insist that he deserves some kind of explanation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you want one? His buddies Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have an answer. It's his fault. Hmm. Job isn't quite satisfied with that explanation. Just in the nick of time, Elihu pops in to tell Job that he may not have sinned, but he still has no right to question his fate. Fuck you, Elihu! After all, God's universe is still endowed with immortal power. Bottom line, suck it up. Which is not great, but like, alright, fair enough. After much fretting and many speeches, God finally shows up. Why? For a scolding. Where was Job on the day the universe was created? Blech, blech. Where was God, uh, where, where was Job when God has uh, made the day the universe was created? Where was Job when God was designing the architecture and the seas and the continents? Where was Job when God invented Arrested Development? Needless to say, Job feels a little humbled and acknowledges that as a mere mortal, he can't possibly understand everything in an immortally uh, ruled universe. Taking Elihu's advice, Job goes back to his day job, and eventually God gives him double what he had at the outset. Job lives to a ripe old age, and both God and Satan fade into the shadows. Yeah, not exactly satisfying, as I recall, but like, Hey, suck it up. Yeah, suck it up. You don't understand. Do you understand shit? No. no. Ah, okay. Now we're on to something. So, hmm. Uh, Job. Uh, we're going to go with Bible Hub, the second one, and then we're going to finish off with uh, Spark Notes. Um, it, and the Smoop seemed to be all right, you know. I like him. 
The book of Job is a narrative history. Its author is unknown, yet it is impossible that Job himself wrote it. Yeah, that's doubtful. It is possible that Job is the oldest of any book of the Bible, written approximately 2100 to 1800 BC. Okay. Key personalities of this book include Job, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and Elihu the Buzite. In Job we see a man who God allows to be directly attacked by Satan. He is an example of faithfulness, as he loses everything important to him yet remains faithful to God. Its purpose is to illustrate God's sovereignty and faithfulness during a time of great suffering. Does it? Does it, though? I don't know if it does. Sovereignty, yes, I suppose. Assuming realism and all that. But, like, the faithfulness is like, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead and do the thing. I'll just show up at the end and solve all the damn problems. Especially, and when he tries to ask for an explanation, I'm like, I'm God! And, uh, he's just gonna have to fucking deal with it. In chapters 1 to 3, God tests Job's faithfulness through allowing Satan to attack him. God told Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. But don't kill him. Through Job's trials, all is lost, including his health. His wife even tells him to curse God and to commit suicide. But you remain strong and faithful. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I don't remember the suicide part, but okay. From chapters 4 to 37, <laughs> Job's friends give him plenty of bad advice. Well, I don't know. They kind of just blame him. In rounds of discussion, they mistakenly blame his sufferings on the personal sins, uh, on his personal sins rather than God testing and growing and growing Job. How are they supposed to fucking know? Honestly, like, <laughs> not like they're talking to God all the time and not like Job was either. So, I mean, all they have to go on is this guy just got a bunch of shit handed to him. And their best thing is, like, you must have been a bad guy. <laughs> like, it's not like, oh, well, God must be testing you. No, that probably didn't even enter their minds, which makes sense. One of them was half correct in that God wanted to humble him. Well, maybe. But this was only a part of God's test. Was it? Because it was mostly Satan starting this shit. In chapters 38 to 42, God speaks to Job and restores him. God knows that Job has received incorrect guidance from his friends. Who is this that darken darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Well, mostly most people <laughs> at this point, you know. We're just kind of, you know, meing around, you know. God fittingly declares that humans do not know everything. Well, damn. Could you help us with that? Then he humbles Job by asking a series of questions that could never be answered by anyone other than the Almighty God. For example, have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Um, well, no. But, why don't we make a dialogue, as I was hoping to do, but, you know, fuck you, I guess. God then brings him to an understanding that believers don't always know what God is doing in their lives. Which is kind of scary. Or he's not doing. <laughs> In the end, Job answers God by saying, I have declared that which I do did not understand. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't fucking know. God then blessed Job with twice as much as he had before as his trials began. So it's better, it seems like, with this Bible hub to be like, I don't know, and put your faith in God. Uh, and apparently that will, that will move you right the fuck along. All right, um, moving on to the final one. We're on Spark Notes now. Uh, this one's a, a bit longer. It's a, it's a two-pager, so I don't know how big of a two-pager, but it's, you know, a two-pager. Um, so here we go. 
Uh, Job is a wealthy man, living in a land called Uz, with his uh, large family and extensive flocks. He is blameless and upright, always careful to avoid doing evil. 1-1. One, one. Uh, one day, Satan, the adversary, appears before God in heaven, which, again, I'm assuming it's the same Satan. Why would it not be? That's a dumb thing to be like, nope, nope, different Satan. Different Satan. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> Why have Satan? Why not change it to just like, and a rando-ass angel. <laughs> Bill, the angel. Uh. Anyway, God boasts to Satan about Job's goodness, but Satan argues that Job is only good because God has blessed him abundantly. Satan challenges God that if given permission to punish the man, Job will turn and curse God. God allows Satan to torment Job to test this bold claim, but he forbids Satan to take Job's life in the process. I do remember that. In the course of one day, Job receives four messages, each bearing separate news that his livestock, servants, and ten children have all died due to marauding invaders or natural catastrophes. Job tears his clothes and shaves his head, oh, does he? In mourning. But he still blesses God in his prayers. Satan appears in heaven again, and God grants him another chance to test Job. This time, Job is afflicted with horrible skin sores. His wife encourages him to curse God, which, you know, and to give up and die. But Job refuses, struggling to accept his circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, can you blame him? Uh, three of Job's friends, as they are so-called, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come to visit him, sitting with Job in silence for seven days out of respect for his mourning, which might have been better spent on their own farms, but all right. On the seventh day, Job speaks, beginning a conversation in which each of the four men, those are three guys, shares, oh, I guess it's four with um, Job, uh, shares his thoughts on Job's afflictions and long poetic statements. Job curses the day he was born, comparing life and death to light and darkness. He wishes that his birth had been shrouded in darkness and longs to have never been born. Again, he's really bad. He's feeling really bad. Feeling that light or <coughs> or life only intensifies his, intensifies his, his, his misery. Eliphaz responds that Job, who has comforted other people, now shows that he never really understood their, play, their pain. Well, fuck you, buddy. Eliphaz believes that Job's agony must be due to some sin Job has committed, and he urges Job to seek God's favor. Well, what do you think I've been doing, buddy? Bildad and Zophar agree that Job must have committed evil to offend God's justice and argue that he should strive to exhibit more blameless behavior. Bildad surmises that Job's children brought their deaths upon themselves. Even worse, Zophar implies that whatever wrong Job has done probably deserves greater punishment than what he has received. Great people. Job responds to each of these remarks, growing so irritated that he calls his friends worthless physicians, who whitewash their advice with lies. Uh, after making pains to assert his blameless character, Job ponders man's relationship to God. He wonders why God judges people by their actions if God can just as easily alter or forgive their behavior. It is also unclear to Job how a human can appease or court God's justice. Yeah, God is unseen and his ways are inscrutable, apparently, and beyond human understanding, again, apparently. Moreover, humans cannot possibly persuade God with their words, yet they have. They have in the past. <laughs> God cannot be deceived, and Job admits that he does not even understand himself well enough to efficiently plead his case to God. 
I remember that. He was like, maybe I need, you know, a lawyer or some help or a priest. Job wishes for someone who can mediate between himself and God, or for God to send him uh, to Sheol, the deep place of the dead. Is that really a thing? I don't remember that, but all right. Uh, Job's friends are offended that he scorns their wisdom. He, they think his questions are crafty and lack an appropriate fear of God. Nah, you're not afraid enough. And they use many analogies and metaphors to stress their ongoing point that nothing good comes of wickedness. Job sustains his confidence in spite of these criticisms, responding that even if he has done evil, it is his own personal problem. <laughs> okay. Furthermore, he believes that there is a witness or a redeemer in heaven who will vouch for his innocence. 1619-1925. After a while, the upbraiding proves too much for Job, and he grows sarcastic, impatient, and afraid. He laments the injustice that God lets wicked people prosper while he and countless other innocent people suffer. It's a good question, man. Job wants to conf uh, confront God and complain, but he cannot physically find God to do it. And he shows up and he's like, okay, all right. He feels that the wisdom is hidden for, uh, from human minds, but he resolves to uh, persist from pursuing wisdom by fearing God and avoiding evil. Again, I totally see Job's thoughts on this. Without provocation, another friend, Elihu, suddenly enters the conversation. The young Elihu believes that Job has spent too much energy vindicating himself rather than God. Fuck you, buddy. I'm in pain here. Fuck him. Elihu explains to Job that God communicates with humans by two ways. Visions and physical pain, which is a great person way to, <laughs> great way to like speak to God. He's either going to beat you or he's going to tell you something, which, you know, <laughs> what else is he going to do, I guess? He says that physical suffering provides the sufferer with an opportunity to realize God's love and forgiveness when he is well again, assuming he ever gets well, understanding that God has ransomed him for an impending death. Again, if, uh, you know, that doesn't always the case, is it? Elihu also assumes that Job must be wicked to be suffering as he is, and he thinks that Job's excessive talking is an act of rebellion against God. <laughs> uh, that sounds like me. God finally interrupts, calling from a whirlwind, not showing up himself, but a whirlwind and demanding Job be to be brave and to respond to his questions. God's questions are rhetorical, yet weird that those two sentences go together, <laughs> intending to show how little Job knows about the creation about creation and how much power God alone has, assumingly. God describes many detailed aspects of his creation, praising especially his creation of two large beasts, the behemoth and Leviathan. Overwhelmed by the encounter, Job acknowledges God's unlimited power and admits the limitations of his human knowledge. Which, again, if we have to assume God is real, then I guess we have to assume that he's omnipotent and all that shit, and that he could make a behemoth or a Leviathan and that human understanding of such things is limited. However, <laughs> kind of shitty that God is like, that's right, you're dumb, and leaves. Um, this response pleases God, but he is upset with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for spouting poor and theologically unsound advice. That I don't punish people because they're bad, I punish them because I feel like it. Job intercedes on their behalf, and God forgives them. Does he? Does he, though? God returns Job's health, providing him with twice as much property as before, new children, and an extremely long life. Okay, um, analysis is here. The book of Job is one of the most celebrated pieces of biblical literature, not only because it explores some of the most profound questions humans ask about their lives, but also because it is extremely well written. I mean, 
comparatively, yes. The work combines two literary forms, framing 40 chapters of verse between two and a half chapters of prose at the beginning and the end. Oh. The poetic discourse of Job and his friends is unique in its own right. The lengthy conversation has the united voice and consistent style of poetry, but it is a dialogue between characters who alter their moods, question their motives, change their minds, and undercut each other with sarcasm and innuendo. Although Job comes closest to doing so, no single character articulates one true or authoritative opinion. Each speaker has his own flaws as well as his own lofty moments of observation or astute theological insight. Interesting. The interaction between Job and his friends illustrates the painful irony of his, of his situation. Our knowledge that Job's punishment is the result of a contest between God and Satan contrasts with Job's confusion and his friends' lecturing as they try to understand why Job is being punished. You know, this is called dramatic irony. We know, they don't. The premise of the friend's argument is that misfortune only follows from evil deeds. Again, the assumption is that. Bildad instructs Job, if you are pure and upright, surely then God will rouse himself for you. And he later goads Job to be a blameless person. 8, 6, 8, 20. The language in, their pa in these passages is ironic, since unbeknownst to Job or Job's friends, God and Satan do in fact view Job as blameless and upright. This contrast shows the folly of the three friends who ignored Job's pain while purporting to encourage him. All right, fair enough. The interaction also, but then again, you know, I can't necessarily blame them. The interaction also shows the folly of trying to understand God's ways. As it turns out, it's a bet. He does whatever he fucking feels like. There's really nothing else to it. The three friends and Job have a serious theoretic, theological conversation about a situation that actually is simply a game between God and Satan. Oh good, I'm not insane. The fault of Job and his friends lies in trying to explain the nature of God with only the limited information available to human knowledge. Aha! Again, not insane. As God himself notes when he roars from the whirlwind, who is this that, dark, that darkness counsel uh, by words without knowledge? 38.2. Uh, I mean, hard to get all the pieces together when you think all the pieces are that. It's hard to know that God was behind it or if he, was, if he was or not, you know. The dominant theme of Job is the difficulty of understanding why an all-powerful God allows good people to suffer. Job wants to find a way to justify God's actions, but he cannot understand why there are evil people who harm the childless woman and do no good to the widow, only to be rewarded with long successful lives, 24-21. Again, good point, that doesn't get answered. Job's friends, including Elihu, say that God distributes outcomes to each person as his or her actions deserve. Really? So, like, you know, harassing people <laughs> gives you a successful life? As a result of his this belief, they insist that Job has committed some wrongdoing to merit his punishment. Again, the thought is like, why does he get to live forever? Or a really long fucking time and not be punished for his thing. God will punish him. When? Because <laughs> he's doing pretty okay. Um... God himself declines to present a rational explanation for the unfair distribution of blessings among men. He boasts to Job, Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Again, yeah! Thank you, Analysis! 38.18 God suggests that people should not discuss divine justice, since God's power is so great that humans cannot possibly justify his ways. Well, fuck you! I'm gonna definitely try! 
One of the chief virtues of the poetry in Job is its rhetoric. The book's rhetorical language seeks to produce an effect in the listener rather than communicate a literal idea. God's onslaught of rhetorical questions to Job, asking if Job can perform the same things he can do, <laughs> overwhelms both Job and the reader with a sense of God's extensive power as well as his pride. Yeah, this is literally the, like, <laughs> look at that dress. <laughs> like, what is that stupid stringy harp thing? And by the way, look at what I can do. <laughs> what does that have to do with? No, 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 he's got a point. Like, that's the argument. That's literally it. It's the crunk uh, argument in the um, fucking <laughs> in Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> fucking dumb. Just realized this. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, um, as well as his pride. Uh, sarcasm is also a frequent rhetorical tool for Job and his friends in their conversation. After Bildad lectures Job about human wisdom, Job sneers. How you have helped one who has no power... How you have assisted the arm that has no strength. I probably read that wrong at the time, but meh. Job is saying that he already knows what Bildad has just explained about wisdom. The self-deprecating tone and sarcastic response are rare elements in ancient verse. Such irony not only heightens the playfulness of the text, but suggests the characters are actively responding to each other, thus connecting their seemingly disparate speeches together. The poetry in Job is a true dialogue, for the characters develop ideas and unique personalities throughout the course of their responses. You're right. <laughs> um, so, good. I don't feel so fucking crazy about the things I'm talking about. Um, that was it, man. That was uh, the summary of Job. Uh, after this, <clears throat> after this stuff, we have a fuck ton of psalms, uh, 150 chapters of it. Um, but this first chapter of it only has like six verses, so it's pretty short. Um, we have Psalms, Proverbs, which also, which doesn't have nearly as much, um, only 30, 30 some, but we're, we're hopping back into things. Um, and then Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, which I hear has some good, good stuff in there. Um, but at this point we're, we're almost halfway through, looks like, um, just judging on the, the titles of things. We're almost halfway through, it seems like, the Old Testament. So, hey, man, we're, we're fucking making it. We're going all over the place, man. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, please leave a review, if you can, on Apple Podcasts. That's where most people seem to be listening, or SoundCloud, or wherever you fucking listen. Uh, and uh, please share with your friends, and yeah, that's about it. And you've been gospel to, all right, by the stupid. <laughs> okay.